Let's pray, and we'll, we'll cover Matthew chapter 17. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, as we come to this story, um, re- really a story that stands in contrast with um, what we covered last week, the transfiguration. And so, Father, as we examine uh, what happened to the uh, nine disciples while uh, Christ is being transfigured at the top of the mountain, and um, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to understand first and foremost, Lord, what, uh, what happened in this story, what happened in this passage that you have left for us, um, that we would understand it correctly in context. Um, and Father, I pray that as we examine um, the historical context of the story, that by your Spirit, you would speak to each one of us, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to, um, to see principles that apply and how we can apply uh, things that happened in this story um, to our own lives. Father, we do love you, and, and we are thankful for the work that you have done and are doing in our life. We pray that you would um, help us to have ears to hear what you have to say, that we would be sensitive to your spirit in leading us. Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people of faith and trust uh, in living our lives for you. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will be moved and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and, they will, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, uh, chapter 17, verse 14 begins with when they came to the crowd. Um, Sort of the the context here, looking at the map, there's been a little change from last week's picture. Can anybody figure out what changed? That's going down. The arrows have shifted directions. So, So previously, sort of leading up to our story, Uh, Jesus, most of his ministry has happened in the Capernaum region right here. Um, He then takes his disciples and he moves north, which is about 27 miles, up to Caesarea Philippi, which is right next door 
to the, the place Dan. If you go to Israel today, you can, you'll visit Caesarea Philippi, and you'll also visit Tel Dan. They're, they're right next to each other. Um, so they go up 27 miles. This was sort of a, a pagan headquarters. Um, this was sort of their heart of worship. And so Jesus goes in the midst of that crowd, and he begins asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they respond with a number of things about the people who they uh, said that Jesus was. Um, they're in a Gentile area, but their answers are very Jewish in nature. Um, then Jesus sort of turns and he says, well, now, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter speaks up for the disciples and he says, you, Jesus, are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You're the, the promised one. And so Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Uh, basically, he says, don't, don't say, the, say anything to anyone. And then we're told in 1621 of Matthew that Jesus, from this point in his life, he begins uh, teaching the disciples something new. Uh, he moves from teaching them about the kingdom of heaven uh, to the truth about the cross, that he's heading, uh, he's six months out, he's heading towards Jerusalem, uh, and that he'll be crucified, that he'll be executed, he'll be buried, and that he'll rise again on the third day. Um, this was hard news for the disciples to hear. Um, uh, <clears throat> he begins to share with them that he's going to the cross. And, 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 and they hear this and they say, this can't be, it'll never be. You'll ne- we'll, we'll go to our lives for you. We'll, 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 uh, I'll die before you die. And Jesus says, stop, You've, you're, you're seeing things according um, to, to man's ways. Not, you're not seeing God's plan. And he tells him, listen, if you want to follow after me, you need to deny yourself. You need to pick up your cross and you need to follow after me. And this was, this was hard for them to understand. And he goes on to explain to them um, that there really is no other option, that, that Christ is the all in all. And that the, at the second coming, when he returns, every person will stand before him and, and rewards will be given for their actions and, and that there is a benefit of following after them. And so we're told that from that situation, from that story, at Caesarea Philippi, they began to move north. I, I believe it's north. We actually don't know what mountain they went to. Uh, geographically, in context, um, it, it just makes sense that, that they would go to Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the, it's the largest mountain in all of the Middle East. There's, there's actually skiing there. Uh, today, you can go to Israel, you can go skiing up on this mountain. It just makes sense from their location that this would be the high mountain that they would go to. Uh, Jesus leaves behind nine disciples, three go with them, Peter, James, and John. They, these three had sort of, um, for, for some reason, Jesus allowed these three to have special access to certain events. And so while they're up there, uh, the guys fall asleep. Uh, Jesus then transfigures himself, uh, meaning that his, his, he allows his full deity to, uh, he is God, and he allows his deity to come out in all of its glory. And Matthew writes that he, he, he basically, his clothes turn bright white. He begins um, shining as if he's the sun. Um, Peter, James, and John wake up to go, what is happening? They see Jesus in all of his glory, and then they see Moses and Elijah having this conversation with Jesus. And we're told um, by harmonizing the Gospels, that the conversation that they were having is that the, the disciples are basically saying, um, or the disciples, uh, Elijah, Moses, and Jesus are talking about uh, Jesus' coming departure. Uh, 
the three disciples are blown away. They don't know what to make of this. Um, the, the father speaks out of heaven to say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And we see that these three get the testimony of Moses, Elijah, and the father testifying uh, to the authenticity of Jesus being the actual Messiah. Uh, they, they leave from the location. It's believed that they're, I believe that they started heading down from Mount Hermon, wherever they were, um, on the mountain, back to the other disciples. As they're traveling down the road, these three guys are still a little bit in shell shock about what just happened. They just seen Moses and they've seen Elijah and they've seen Jesus transfigured unlike anything they've ever seen before. Um, and so they have some questions that they have to ask Jesus. And they, one of them that comes to mind is they say, you know, Lord, they, uh, the, the scribes say that Elijah must come back before the Messiah comes. And so we, we just saw Elijah. Can you help us understand this? And Jesus begins sort of explaining to them uh, uh, about Elijah, about John the Baptist, and, and all of these things sort of prophetically how they're coming together. And he says, listen, don't say anything uh, about this. this the, until I depart, um, you need to stay quiet about what you've just seen. And so that's the scene on the mountain. T- today's story um, is sort of we're stumbling across the story, what Jesus encounters while these, or the, the three disciples in Jesus are up at the top, at the bottom of the mountain, um, there's a situation that's been going on with the nine disciples, very contrasting in their, in their stories. Um, verse 14, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and he is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and into the water. Um, Jesus is confronted with this desperate situation. Matthew doesn't really give us the full insight to what what, what happens. So I've told you to hold your place into Mark chapter 9. We're going to go back and forth a whole bunch of times. Um, in, In Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14, we read this. So kind of picking up the story at the same spot. When they, that's... Uh, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus came back to the disciples, the other nine disciples that were left behind. Um, They saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And so as they're walking down the mountain, all of a sudden they see this huge crowd over off, you know, off to the sea, off the side there. In the midst of this crowd, there's an argument happening. Um, And we, and and as they sort of get closer, they, they come to determine that the argument is between the scribes and between the disciples. And they're, they're having it out. I think us uh, in the West, how we compose ourselves um, during an ar- a verbal sort of argument is very reserved and not very animated. Um, uh, recently, I was reminded of how things are sort of different in the Middle East and how a lot of the world is, they're very more, I don't know what the word is that I'm using, but they use their hands and they, they're loud and they, they basically, it seems way worse um, when we were in Israel, we had the opportunity to go to one of the, 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 the football games or soccer games, and it, 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 was, it was getting close to the playoffs. And our tour guide said, hey, if you guys want to go, it'll be great. This is, all the seats are opened up. It's no longer, you don't buy a ticket for the actual seat. And, and so we, we're like, we're in. So all of the guys, we, we opt to go to this game. And we, we get very good seats, and we're, we have this whole row. And before us, there's um, 
there's a man standing there that, to my best way of describing him, he looked like a shorter version of Andre the Giant. I don't know if you guys are from The Princess Bride. This is, Dave, can you confirm that that's what, I mean, he looked like Andre the Giant. He's big, he's, um, the other guy would maybe be Shrek, you know, but not a green version of Shrek, but just sort of like, he's big and stocky, and he's speaking Hebrew. When he looks at our guy, he, said, he starts talking to them, and it's like, are we in trouble? And our guy says, no, 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 you guys are American, so he's cool with it. But he said, the seats that we are in were his seats all season. But because we're Americans, he's going to give up his seats, even though they're open seating. He still kind of owned them in his mind. He said that he would take the row in front of us. And so he, this one man, reserved like nine seats in front of, in front of us. But the stadium is filling up drastically, except for these nine seats. And we're all American, English-speaking guys, and all of the Hebrew guys are showing up behind us, saying stuff to us. We're like, just pointing to Andre the Giant. And he looked back at them and said, they're taken or whatever. And, and people like, they're starting to get mad because the game is about to start. The stadium is filled up. There's a walkway behind us. It's standing room only. And so here we are, sort of between Andre the Giants and all of these people who are angry, they're, go, they're getting really mad. And I'm going, this isn't going to be pretty. This is like, they are all but about to get in fist fights with all these people. And the guy's like, no, I'm getting a little nervous. Dave looks at me and he's like, I'm just so impressed with these people. Um, I'm so used to Americans, like they just get disrespectful. This argument, they're very respectful. They're animated and you can tell they're angry and there's something going on, but they're all being very respectful. I'm like, well, we have very different uh, perspectives on the situation here. And so I'm imagining a situation like this. I don't, I, don't, I don't see when it says that they were arguing with them, when the scribes are arguing, I don't see um, like an intellectual with manners, sort of like a, 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 a friendly, cordial debate. I see very Middle Eastern kind of, they are going at it. And this whole scene, so, so many of... Um, so many of the, the scholars, they, they take this picture of the transfiguration coming down to the disciples, and they say that it's so uncanny. This has, this, has th- this whole story of Moses going up on Mount Sinai and receiving the law, and then coming down to the people of Israel who had um, they, they'd previously said, hey, whatever, whatever God wants, we're going to do. We're going to serve him. We're going to walk with him. Moses goes up. He spends time with God. He comes down with the law. By the time he comes down, there's the golden calf. The people are all doing pagan worship. Moses gets infuriated, um, does a bunch of stuff. And so they, they point to the similarities in this. It's sort of uncanny. Um, so Jesus comes to the scene. He sees them arguing, picking up in verse 15 of Mark. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, that's Jesus, they were amazed and began running to greet him. And he asked them. So Jesus asked this crowd who runs towards him. He asked them, what are you discussing with them? What's, the, what, what's happening here? What's, why is everybody so upset? And one of the crowd answered him. Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. So already Mark gives us a little bit more insight. Uh, so not only is this, uh, this young, I think it's like probably like a young adult child, maybe teenager. We don't really know the age. Um, 
we, we learned that not only is he demon-possessed where it comes out in seizures and, and, and things, but he also has lost the, the ability to, to speak. And, and whenever it seizes him, verse 18, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and stiffens and uh, he stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Hmm. So, so Mark gives way more flavor. You can, you can head back. Uh, well, let's say here. This is the whole going back and forth. I, I, I have a hard time figuring out which, how much to go ahead. And um, to save us page flipping, I'll just kind of move ahead in Mark here for a little bit. Um, so, so as Jesus asks, what's going on here? The, the man who comes forward to address Jesus, what the situation is, um, it's the man who brought his son, the guy who sparked this whole fire. He said, listen, I have this son of mine. He, um, he's demon-possessed. He can't speak. This demon, ta- this demon takes control of him. It, it flops him to the ground. It, it, it tries to, I don't know if we've read it or we will read it, but he, it says that it, it casts him into the fire. It casts him into the water. This demon is trying to kill my boy. Um, I, I've, I've traveled from we don't know where, but I don't believe that traveling with a, a, a person in this condition was an easy journey. Um, we, we don't know where they are in this journey. From Mount, we know that they probably started somewhere, I, I believe I should say, that they started somewhere up at Mount Hermon. They move their way to Caesarea. Um, next week where we start, we know that they end up at Capernaum. So somewhere along this journey, this is all of the region of the Galilee. Somewhere in here, we know that they are. And this man has traveled probably from somewhere down south. He's heard about this Jesus. He's heard about this rabbi who heals, who teaches like no other. He has this child, this son of his, that's that's had this problem, this demon possession for many, many years. And so he travels to find Jesus to get to him. And he finally links up with the disciples. There's nine of them. Oh, you're the disciples of Jesus. I've come for your master. My son, he's demon possessed. Can you help him? So we know from back in chapter 10, verse 1, that the the disciples had been given uh, this gift and this authority to cast out demons, to heal, to do these things as they were going about teaching. This was in their tool bag of things that Jesus had had gifted them with. But this man, as he brings his son to them, we see that they are ineffective. They are unable to cast this demon out of this young man. And it's believed that, that from, from that, their failure, the scribes are there, the crowds are there. And it's believed that the scribes begin sort of making accusations against, uh, against Jesus' disciples. Like, hey, I thought your guy was the Messiah. I thought you guys could do this. You just look like you're ineffective. And, and who knows what they were arguing about? I imagine the disciples are defending Jesus, and they're making accusations toward him. And then there's just this guy with his son that all he wants is help for his boy. And he doesn't seem to get caught up in all the squabble. As soon as he sees Jesus, he runs over to him and says, hey, your guys weren't able to help me. He's sort of indicating, I want, I want help. Jesus is asking, what, what's going on here? The guy's like, I'll tell you what's going on here. Let's not get sidetracked. I brought my boy who is demon-possessed, who can't speak, I, I need help, and your your disciples couldn't do it. Um, I just think Jesus is like, 
<laughs> and the three disciples that were with him, like, we were just up on the mountaintop. What ha- Like, what has been going on while we were away? Um, the, this contrast of this spiritual high, simultaneously there's this spiritual low going on. Um, one of the things as I was reading and studying was I, I read about this famous painting that, that back in the 1500s, uh, a contemporary of Martin Luther, like at the same time that Martin Luther uh, tacked his 95 thesis to the door, um, there was an artist that was commissioned to, to paint the story of the transfiguration. And, and reading about it, it was fascinating. Um, the, everything I read about this painting, I, now I didn't see the painting. I, I, um, I read about it, I'm like, this is, this is wonderful. That, that the, the guy takes his painting and he has a transfiguration, but underneath the transfiguration, he depicts the, the situation that's happening at the bottom of the mountain. And so I'm sort of reviewing my, my notes with Anna. I'm going, I'm like, yeah, there's this pitch. There's this artist who died, I guess, and he made this wonderful painting. She's like, who is that? I'm like, well, I don't go look up a painting. I don't care about art. Like, I just, but the story behind the art was fascinating. And so my dear wife has been trying to, like, culture me uh, with the arts and things for a long time now. It's a losing battle on her part. And so she Googles it, artist dies transfiguration. Apparently this guy Raphael is pretty famous. You guys, <laughs> you guys are all laughing like you know who he is. So then she Googles it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I've seen that picture before. That's pretty famous, huh? So this is the picture. Can we click over to the next? So this is the, the picture you see. Um, okay, apparently, see, the last service I said, well, one of those guys is Moses and one of those guys is Elijah. I can't tell the difference. But I was corrected in between services. See, the guy there holding the book, that's the law. So that's Moses. And then you have Elijah. You have the three disciples sort of waking up in stupor underneath the transfiguration of Jesus. But then at the bottom of the hill, you, you have this whole scene of chaos. I'm like, that is fascinating. Um, so now I know who Raphael is. My wife previously has taught me who uh, Pablo Picasso is. Um, so I'm still, you know, I have two artists down, and I can identify like two or three paintings. So another, another you know, 20 years, maybe I'll have two more down. Um, <clears throat> okay, where, where are we at? We can go back to the previous slide here. Um, so, so, so the whole... This whole story, that they stand in tension with one another. I do think that there's a lesson here that so often after a spiritual high where God begins moving in your life and you do something, whether it's getting baptized, stepping out by faith to maybe teach a Bible study or go on, whatever it is that God challenges you, you step out by faith and you do it. So often there is a uh, a, a low that follows that, that there's like a wave of spiritual attack. And I do think that in this story, we, we could see this in chapter 17. Uh, there's this, this high that's happening, this, this mountaintop experience by the three. The other nine guys are, are, are totally facing um, a, a struggle of their own. So we read Matthew's, Mark's account back in Matthew. Matthew, he says, uh, so 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 few words about everything that Mark had described. Um, going back to Matthew, kind of starting from the top, reading, it says, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic or moonstruck, is another translation, and he is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and into the water, 
I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. They, they failed. They couldn't handle this. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And so Jesus starts out with this. We see this rebuke that he has. And I think this is to the whole crowds. And it seems that he's, he's scolding them because they're, they're, they, they still are just not getting it. They're not getting who he is. They're not understanding. And, and the, the piece to this puzzle is, is going to, to, to unfold for us in a, in a little bit here. Um, but, but Jesus scolds them. We, we see that he, he tells um, the father to bring this, the son to him. And then in verse 18 of Matthew, Matthew records, and Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Sticking to the facts, sticking to what happened, just in very few words. Um, Matthew's account just makes it sound like the, the father brought the boy to him. Jesus uh, rebukes him. The demon comes out. Uh, the boy was cured. Everything ha- hunky-dory, and they're on their way. Now let's go back to Mark and see how Mark shares this story. Matthew's emphasis, I think, is totally on the, 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 the Lord and who, who Jesus is. Like Jesus' authority, they, he can speak and things happen. But now Mark records this story. Uh, Mark, who, who normally flies over things, this seems like a traumatic event. Um, it, it, well, let's just, let's just read the story. I've got to figure out where to pick up here. Verse 19, and he answered them, that's Jesus answered the crowd and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, when the boy saw Jesus, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. I read this, it's probably a, a poor thought, but the picture I have that comes to my mind is, um, is, is going to the mechanic with a car that has an issue. You don't have to raise your hands, but it seems like to me, whenever my car is making a noise, like there's a clunking or a clanking and something's like not right, I drive down to the mechanic. I'm like, my car's making a clunk, clunk, clunk. I think it's from the back. I'm not sure. They take it out for a test drive. They're like, your car's not making any sound. We can't recreate the sound. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's doing it. Like, you have to hit like 35 miles an hour, then make a right turn, and you hear the clunk, clunk, clunk. And But this, the father takes his son before Jesus, and the clunk, clunk, clunk happens. Like, as soon as he brings his son before Jesus... The son or the demon within the son sees Jesus and immediately a convulsion starts happening and this violence of action on this man's child happens before the Lord. The the demon is exposed for what he's doing to the child. And as he's having this convulsion, Jesus asks his father, how long has this been happening to him? How long has this been going on? Father says, since childhood. 
Like, this is a heart-wrenching. Like, the father's like, I, I, we don't know how, we, we know that they're referring to the, this, this son as, as a boy. But when the father responds since childhood, it, it, it gives the impression that maybe this happened when he was like one or two, and maybe the kid could be 12, 13, 14, so he's, he's a lot more mature. But the father's like, this has been happening for a long time. Like his whole life, and I'm, this is just me speculating. This is me like imagining this man, imagining the story, not that the scripture says it. But this man has like devoted his life to caring for his son, trying to get his son help, and nothing's worked. And now he brings his son to the disciples, and the disciples can't do it. And now he's, he's here before Jesus, like desperate for anything. And he continues, he said, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. It's trying to kill him. But if you can do anything, please take pity on us and help, and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. I, I, love, I love this whole exchange. And I think it's super easy to sort of, I think it's easy at this point in the story to say, oh, this father just didn't have faith. And if, he father had, if his father had some faith, he could have done something, that he could have helped him. And it so seems um, like Jesus is scolding this man. And I, and I think that we're, I think we, I believe that we're sort of mis- emphasizing or, or misimagining how this sort of comes out in context. Because I do think that if there's anybody who has faith in the story, I, I think that the father has faith. He's, he's brought his son from wherever he's come from to try to find Jesus. He brings him to the place where, where he finds the disciples. He, he throws himself with his son before the disciples, pleads for help. The disciples can't help. Now he's, he's, he's in the midst of like the, the subject of this, this theological argument between the scribes and the disciples, and all he wants to do is help his boy. As soon as he sees Jesus coming down the, the mountain, he leaves them, runs to Jesus, and begins pleading for help. And here he is, Jesus is engaging with him. And I think he just used like some poor words, and Jesus' response is to teach the crowd a greater lesson of what she's leading to. The guy is just trying, like, uh, I think that there's humility. That this, this, this is a father that's been dealing with a severe, we can't say illness, this is demon possession. I, I imagine that he's gone to the doctors, he's gone to the temple, he's gone to everybody that could possibly help him. He's, he's running thin of, of trusting people. And he says, if you can help, like, I, I think that this is his way of, of humbly asking Jesus. Um, but if you can do anything, please take pity on us and help us. This is a posture of humility. This is a posture of falling before Christ in total humility. But then Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes and I believe that Jesus is sort of like helping the crowd to understand his power, his authority, that he has the capacity, ability, and desire to, to do things, to, to heal this child. And I love the father's response. The father doesn't get into like a, a no, that's not what I meant, Jesus. That's not what I said. You're missing, like the student who begins arguing with the teacher. 
he immediately takes what Jesus said and he says, I do believe. And he prays probably the the most beautiful prayer in the whole Bible. I do believe, hope my unbelief. There are things that are outside of our capacity. And here this father is like, Lord, I believe, I believe. And, and where my, my belief fails, will you help me with that? Will you help me to grow in this area? I heard John MacArthur say something along the lines of, which I thought was really good, that uh, where faith ends, worry, anxiety, frustration, and fear begin. And, and so this, the, this father has sort of reached the end of where his faith would allow him to go. And he acknowledges that he has faith, but he's falling short and he's pleading with God, heal my boy, heal my lack of faith, help me to get beyond this. It's beautiful. And when Jesus saw the crowd was rapidly gathering, the crowd is building. It's like kids on a schoolyard where somebody yells fight and they all sort of like flaw. They're just like, hey, what's going on? I think kids still do that. That's what used to happen many years ago. And he sees the crowd, verse 25, rapidly gathering. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into a terrible, into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the, the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. Like, imagine the scene. Like, I laugh at Matthew. Matthew just, what does Matthew say? Just going back real quick here. It says, uh, and Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was uh, cured at once. But, but you read this and Jesus looks at this demon inside of this child, and he says, I command you to come out, and this boy so violently goes into convulsions. He's being flopped all around like a rag doll, is what I sort of imagine in my mind, that when the demon finally comes out, the boys, the crowd looks at him, is like, he's dead. I can't, I can't imagine the, the fear um, the, what have I done? Like the father, what have I done? Did I just kill my child? They're all horrified at the scene. But Jesus, in verse 27, he took him by the hand and he raised him and he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. You can go back to Matthew and we're just going to kind of stay in Matthew from this point forward. So Matthew writes, and Jesus rebuked him, Matthew 17, 18. It rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. This whole, this, this whole scene of what happened, I believe, is this, a, a teaching moment for Jesus to the disciples. I, um, so far, we've just sort of covered the history of the story. We, haven't, we, ha- we, haven't, we don't have any insight. But then we come to verse 19. And we read the disciples came to Jesus privately. Mark tells us that they, they found their way into a house. So it's the disciples and Jesus in, in a house. Uh, they're private. And they ask Jesus, they say, what, what did we do wrong? Like, what, what happened? How were you able to cast this demon out? 
And yet we were so ineffective. We, it, it, we failed. And they'd been doing this. This isn't something that was new to them. Back in chapter 10, verse 1, we see that Jesus had commissioned them to, to cast out demons, to heal people, to do certain things. They, they, they had been anointed in this way. But this one gave them a problem. And they're like, Jesus, what, where, where did we go wrong? How come we couldn't do this? You clearly were able to do this. How, how were we not able to do this? And Jesus responds in verse 20, and he says to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Okay, so Jesus' response has, it's one of these things that has, has, is, is kind of like beef jerky. Uh, this is spiritual beef jerky. I like beef jerky. You've got to chew on it. You can get one piece and you can chew for a long time. There's a lot of satisfaction in it. Uh, but, but spiritual, biblical beef jerky is kind of something that you got to take it in. You got to think through and 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 what's he saying? What what's going on here? And and this one is one that makes us think. But but we also we also have to deal with. This is one of those verses that has been um, like that has been hijacked by the faith movement. And so people will say like they'll take this one verse out of context and. And they begin these ministries like faith healing and stuff. And so I'm gripped with, like, where do I even start? I've got a bunch of notes, and how do I uh, deal with this? Um, so I think that the, fir- the first thing I want to I deal with is, is this verse is so often um, taken out of context with it within Within the faith movement, and when I say that, as you've probably seen on TV, um, I actually have this buddy that I've been friends with since high school. Suddenly, he's all wrapped up in, um, there's things that are happening up in the L.A. area that are, like, really extremely charismatic, where, like, crazy things are, you know, the, the, the claim is crazy things are happening. And so I'm, like, watching this guy post videos, and I'm kind of, like, shaking my head, kind of, I just don't understand, but I'm just, observe, I'm just not, and I'm just going to let it go sort of thing. And what I've observed in the faith movement, the faith healers, um, they describe, the, or I would say that their faith is in faith. Um, let me explain. So um, somebody goes and this person says, you're going to be healed of your diabetes um, if you have enough faith. The person says, I have enough faith. I'm, I've been uh, cured of my diabetes. I believe it. I claim it. Um, Anna, I think, as it, well, she's gone. Rapture didn't happen. And I, my wife I was the only one who made it. Um, uh, um, she, you know, she, she, folks, she had a friend who had diabetes, went to a faith, faith healing thing. And, 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 um, and so she, by faith, stops her insulin because she believes that she's cured. It could have been a he, the, the facts, you know, uh, the details of the facts, I should say. Um, the person went without their insulin so long that eventually they almost died. Um, 
and they eventually went to the, they had to go to the ER, and the doctors sort of treated everything, got the insulin, got everything back, and then this person sort of went back to the faith healer and said, what happened? And in that moment, who, who was blamed for the failure? The girl who stopped her insulin, she, what was blamed was is that her faith wasn't strong enough. So, she, so her, her faith and her own faith is what basically failed. Um, that there was no responsibility. And I don't think that this is what Jesus is getting at, okay? I don't want to spend a whole lot of time uh, like on what it's not. Let's, let's focus on what it is. Um, and so Jesus, the issue of faith, we, when we talk about biblical faith, our, our faith isn't in the actual act of faith alone. Our, our faith is placed upon God, upon Christ, the, the one who is all-powerful, who is able to do um, all things. Like he says, if you have faith um, the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move here, Move from here to there, and it will be moved. Nothing is impossible for you. And, and so right off the bat, I, I, what I'm not saying is I'm not saying that God doesn't have the ability or in the business of, of healing and doing great things in people's lives today. I, 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 I believe that God is God. God can and has moved mountains in the past. We're told that, that he spoke all things into existence, that, that Christ in Colossians were told that, that when the earth was void, the mountains raised up, that by his power, mountains were created, valleys were created, the earth, uh, the heavens and the earth, everything was spoken in existence by him. As we read through the Bible, there's, there's stories, I think of recently in my own personal reading, that, that the people of, uh, I think it was Korah, as they took I, the town, they were told not to gather any, um, any possessions, and this family took some possessions, and they, they buried them, and their sin was found out, and God split the earth open, swallowed up the family, and then closed it back up. God can do this. So I'm not saying, like, don't hear me and say that God's done working and God's done doing things. That, that's in God's realm. Um, it, it, you can use this moving mountains. There's, there's hyperbole of, through, in the Old Testament. I didn't write down the passages, but there's a number of passages where this idea of moving mountains was used to describe sort of obstacles, um, typically, uh, what I don't think that Jesus is saying is, um, you know, I got some trees in the way of my view of Mount Palomar. Like, I really think one of the things about Valley Center, I love the view of Mount Palomar, but I got some trees there. And Palomar, to me, it would be way better if it was just to the left, like 20 miles. If it was to the left 20 miles, I would have a spectacular view. And I don't think, why, I, I don't think, I, like Jesus isn't saying if you have faith, you can move mountains. Like, I, I, I want, like, Lord, I just really please move Palomar 20 miles so I could have a sweet, sweeter view. Or maybe you need the Palomar to move so you could have better sunrise in the morning or you want the sun to be blocked in the afternoon. Like, that, that's not what he's getting at. He's getting at them for their faith. Um, now notice it says, he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. So Jesus right away confronts the disciples with their faith. He then said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. Now, I have a mustard seed right here. Can you guys see it? I don't have a mustard seed. 
But it's, the idea is it's so small. And so if Jesus tells them, if you had the faith of the size of a mustard seed, you could do this or this or this. So what does that say about their faith and what just happened? That they had zero faith, that there was no faith. Um, I'm trying to figure out where to move along because I have my notes all over. So I want to sort of define faith. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, I think that Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 is uh, the the best place uh, to see and understand biblical faith. So chapter 11 verse 1 defines faith. We read that now faith is the assurance or substance of things hoped for or expected. The conviction or evidence could be the word of things not seen. And so there's this idea that that what faith is, is is this assurance of something that you can't see, a a, a hope and evidence that's there. I would suggest that the the actual, the, the object of the faith is God, his word, his promises, the things that he has said that he would do. Um, that's the example of all of the people that are listed. This chapter 11, the heroes of the faith, you can read through this. You read about Abel, you read about Enoch, you read about Noah, you read about Abraham twice, you read about Sarah, you read about Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight, and others experienced mocking, scourgings, yet chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were attempted, they were put to death, with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And so going back to Matthew, and you can, you can ponder, we don't have time to sort of unpack all of Hebrews. But I think the essence of Hebrews is God spoke to these people. God revealed himself. God commanded them in some way. And the people said, well, I can't see. I can't fully. Uh, it, 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 it takes sort of me stepping forward, trusting God at his word, and not being able to make sense of all of the details. And we're told in Hebrews that these people did it and that God honored them for their faith. And even they in their lifetime didn't see the promise that God said he would give to them. And so back in Matthew, Jesus says, if you had, if you had just any faith, it, even a little bit, great things could happen. And it's not, the faith isn't the issue because it says faith is out of a mustard seed. Faith, it's nothing could move a mountain. The issue is the object of the faith, which is God, which is Christ, who is all powerful. We we, we've just read last week the story of the transfiguration. We see his, his deity, his almighty power throughout the scriptures. We, we, we see that he simply spoke creation into existence. He, we're told in Colossians that, that Christ holds the world together. It's by his power. Before I move on with some of the things that I see in this passage, I want to deal with verse 21 very quickly. Um, 
if you have the NIV, ESV, uh, I'm not sure what other ones, you might skip straight from verse 20 down to verse 22. Um, if you have the New American Standard, other translations, you'll have this passage in brackets. The other ones, it will have a, a, like a star or something notifying you, hey, see, see your notes. Um, I never know how far, my, my passion is to really like, I, I, I like textual criticism, like how we have the New Testament is a, is a, a terribly important thing. Um, God has preserved the New Testament. The, the New Testament and the Old Testament were preserved in very different ways. Uh, the New Testament was preserved as these were letters that were written to local churches. As they got to local churches, scribes would copy them down a bunch of times, and then they would go about, and there's copies of copies of copies of copies and copies all over the place. So we, going back 2,000 years, we don't, we don't have the original manuscripts of the New Testament, but what we have is like hundreds of thousands of, like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of the manuscripts. Some, some are um, a couple years after the original writing. Some are uh, like, you know, maybe 50 years later. They're, they're, they're aged differently. But there are guys with thick glasses and attention to detail who love this stuff, who, who are called textual critics, who, who, who study all of the manuscripts, they correlate them to, that ultimately authentic, like gives us, authentic, uh, what's the word I'm looking at? Authenticates like, the fact that we have the word of God and we can, we, can, we can trust upon it, that it's reliable. And so what happens in verse 21, what happened here is for many years we have a, a huge portion, the majority text of, of, of the manuscripts. In the majority text, meaning that there, there are more of them, um, verse 21 is in Matthew. Uh, the King James, when it was written, that's all they had. They, so they went off of that. The King James had such a profound impact in, into the, the biblical literacy and understanding um, that it just carries a lot of weight. And so then... Later in time, after the King James was created, there was a discovery made by archaeologists in, uh, in Egypt, and they found the critical text or the minority text. There's less of them, but they're much, much, much older. They're closer to the original uh, writings. Um, they were found in a location where they were preserved in a way that, like if they were anywhere else in the world, they would have been destroyed, but because they happened to be in Egypt, they, uh, uh, they were preserved. And so then they went through all of those texts and they started looking. And in your Bibles, you'll find spots. That, and, and it happens all the time in your, in your Bibles. Um, the, the scholars then will like argue. They have them rated from like A, B, C, D, E of, of what they think from most likely to unlikely. And so when we come to this verse, what the scholars have said is based on the findings that were in Egypt, they don't, they don't believe that... Uh, Verse 21 was actually in, see, there were, the verses and numbers didn't come until the 1600, like the 1500s. So, um, so they said in the original ones, verse 21 is not there. This line isn't there. It's in the older ones, but not on the newer ones. And they believe that the scribes added it in. But before you start saying, oh, we can't trust the Bible, we can't trust the Bible, first I'll point out to you that the scholars actually point this out to us, that there it is in brackets. And then they'll also find a footnote that if you go into the Mark's account, the same line is in Mark. 
So it's, it's not that the content of what is written here is in question. The content is, 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 is reliable. And what Jesus says in verse 21, when they ask, how, um, how do we handle this? I could just go over to Mark and read it to you because it's in Mark and it's authenticated in Mark. He says, you know, some require like prayer and fasting. Like not all, not all decisions, not all things that you face as you walk with God um, carry the same spiritual warfare. When Anna asked me when I'm out in town, this happened yesterday. She said, hey, we need more cereal. If you're at Costco, could you pick up some cereal? And there I am. Looking at all the different choices. That was not a spiritual decision that required me to pray and fast to sort of figure out the right answer. I just got two of my favorites and she'll have to deal with it when I get home. That's not on the same level as somebody whose son who's been demon-possessed since childhood or uh, you're about to get married or you're single and you'd like to get married or, or you're grappling with a career change or going into some, some, some major life. There are some decisions that require way more of us uh, seeking God and, and asking him for wisdom and discernment. And Jesus says, like, listen, this, uh, this kind of demon required a lot of prayer and fasting. Um, I want to move on. We're, we're running really short on time. When I look at this whole section, and he's going to go into to sharing about the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, where he says in verse 22, And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to him, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. They were deeply grieved. He, he adds more to what happened in chapter 16. He, he informs him that he's going to be betrayed. Um, he's, he's starting to communicate to them the cross the cross is something that each of us have to contend with. The cross is probably the greatest step of faith that any of us will have to take. They were grieved because I don't think that they heard the resurrection part. And even if they heard the resurrection part, I don't think that they understood the implications of it. And so when I look at the, the overall thrust of this section and, 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 and the lesson that I see um, I think that one of the big things that stands out to me is the danger of trying to walk with God and to serve God in your own strength. See, Jesus says if you even had the amount of faith as a mustard seed, that's a tiny little bit of faith, which to have less than that means that you probably had none, I, I think is a safe guess. If you go back to chapter 10, verse 1, and we see that Jesus commissions the 12 disciples as apostles. He sends them out two by two to, uh, to, to do these very same things. I'll, you don't have to go there. I will turn there. And it says, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach their cities. Uh, that's chapter 11, excuse me. Jesus summoned the 12 disciples and gave them the authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And so they went out to do this. And I believe that the first time they stumbled across somebody that was demon-possessed, they're terrified. Lord, what do we do? Lord, how do we do this? They're communicating with God. They're walking with God. Lord, you said that we have the authority to do this. We don't have to do this. Lord, if this is going to happen, we need you to, to, to pull this off. And then they prayed or did whatever for the first one. Whoa. 
oh, did you see God work? Then they move a little bit longer in their lives. They get to the second one. I remember what God, Lord, if you're going to do this, like we need you to do this. Lord, cast this demon out of this guy. Whoa, it worked again. Now you fast forward to like number 20. Oh, we've been doing this. Hey, demon, be gone. Without seeking God, without any faith, without walking with him. And I think this is what happened, that these guys had grown comfortable in what they were doing where they were not dependent upon God and trying to cast out this demon. This happens to us. Wherever you're serving, wherever you're walking, it's so easy um, to, to start something that you're inspired by God, that God is leading you by his spirit, that you're walking by faith, and then it shifts into um, something where God departs. It might be good. It might be teaching a Bible study. It might be serving the homeless. It might be what you fill in the blanks. Whatever Ephesians 2.10 is in your life, where you move from being led by the spirit to do it in your own strength, that's the danger that I see in this passage. Um, one guy says it's easy for a genuine experience of God's grace to deteriorate into something mechanical, going through the motions. When I read that quote, it made me think of a song. Um, I love that Caleb has a broader influence now, so I've moved from listening to talk radio to, um, to, wor- to worship music. And there's a song that I really love that's on Caleb. I'm sure it's in other places, but um, there's a song called um, The Motions. Maybe you've heard it. I'm going to try to refrain from singing it. It says, because I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to go one more day without your all-consuming passion inside of me. I don't want to spend my whole life asking, what if I had given everything instead of going through the motions? When that song comes on the radio, I turn it up, and I start singing it, and I get into it. And if you see me on the road, and you see me kind of, what's Gunnar doing? That's probably what's happening. I love it. And so last night, I'm like Googling this song to try to remember what, like, what the name of the song is, but there's a whole story behind that song. And this guy, Matthew West, who wrote this song, he's a professional singer, and his throat started giving him issues to the point where he had to have a, a throat surgery. And the doctors told him, listen, you're, you need to have throat surgery. There's no guarantee it'll work. You very likely could lose the voice, your voice for the whole rest of your life. So this was a, a devastating um, step of faith for him to go through. And then they said, after we do the surgery, we won't even begin to know if it works because you have to be silent. You're not allowed to say anything for two months. And so he goes through the procedure. He's, he can't speak for two months. And he said that through that experience of having to be silent, that what God taught him was this, like this song came out of that experience. And he said, I don't want to just go through life, going through the motions, doing all this Christian stuff, but not really walk in with my God. I want to serve him and walk with him with all that I have. And I think that the lesson what the disciples are learning here is don't let your relationship with God grow cold. Don't grow complacent. We need to grow more dependent upon him. How do we do this? I don't want to sound cliche, But I do think time in the word, studying, walking with God, praying, communicating about his word, allowing him to uh, minister to you through his word, which he's given to us. Uh, There's something about prayer. There's there's something about music, like I like not just music, but like worship music. I've noticed since I've been listening to more Caleb and I stopped listening to political radio. um, I'm like way more spirit filled in how I live my life. 
And I think that there's like the computer programmers that the saying about garbage in, garbage out, I think the same applies to us. If you put godly things in, spirit-filled things will come out. But if you put garbage, garbage is going to come out. I think that this time of fellowship with one another is important. This time of linking arms and going through life. And some of us might be on the, the, the peak with God and others of us are on the valley with God. And we're, we're, we all are needed to help each other in this journey. I'd also, if you're lacking in your faith, I'd encourage you. Like I've, one of the greatest things that I've learned by increasing my faith is by stepping out and allowing God uh, to use you. Maybe it's teaching a Bible study. Maybe it's going on a mission trip. Something that terrifies you that you know that you need God to get you through it. Um, stuff like that charges our spiritual batteries. Okay, we're out of time. I'm going to end with, as he moves to the cross, uh, uh, the Christian life begins with the cross. The cross is the jugular vein. The whole idea that Jesus died for you, he died for me, so that we might have life in him, that there's no way to, you can study the evidence, you can look at the facts, you can look at everything to sort of shore up the details, but you can never bridge the gap of faith. It was Paul who wrote that we walk by faith, not by sight. And so my prayer is that each of us would be able to walk by faith, trusting in him um, to, to work in us and through us in our lives. And Father, we do thank you for this day. I thank you for this, uh, this, this body of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I thank you um, for the desire that's here um, to study your word uh, verse by verse, line by line, that there's an eagerness, a desire um, in us, Lord, to, uh, to grow closer to you through studying your word. And Father, as this uh, father prayed, um, as he cried out to Jesus that he believes, but, but asking that you would increase his faith to, to, to help move him along, uh, Lord, where he doubts that you would move him along, that his faith in you would, would grow. Father, this life is a, it's filled with so much wonder. There's so much beauty and so much wonderful, many wonderful things and, and, and love and joy. But also in this world, Lord, there's so much suffering. There's so much anguish. There are things that we um, are troubled by. And so, Lord, um, as we seek you in the midst of the difficulties of life, Lord, we, are, we acknowledge, as this Father acknowledged, that our faith becomes challenged. And Lord, we struggle at times, Lord, trusting you, um, whether it's in uh, facing death, whether it's in facing medical problems, whether it's uh, finances, uh, relationships. Lord, there are so many different options of mountains that we face in this life. And so, Lord, I lift up each person to you, um, that they would keep their eyes upon you. Lord, that they would have faith that you will work and move in their lives, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for being so good to us. And that's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.